by not investing in women, you're missing out on tremendous opportunities and leaving money on the table. So I get incredibly motivated every day to wake up and prove that point uh, and, and work with amazing investors, founders, entrepreneurs that are really changing um, the face of, of the investment ecosystem, venture capital, the investment industry broadly. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. There's no doubt that women are chronically underrepresented in technology and venture capital. At Pivotal Ventures, Erin Harkles Moore seeks to fill the gender gap we know all too well. Throughout her investing career, Erin has consistently aligned her values with her work. Social impact has always been a priority, but became especially urgent when she transitioned to venture. As the investment director at Pivotal, Erin seeks to expand women's power and influence by investing in female-led funds and backing innovation that directly impacts the lives of family caregivers. In this episode, we learn how Erin embraces social progress across her professional life and how she's helping to advance venture as a result. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Erin. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Christine, for having me. It's a real pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, it's been so exciting for me to get to know you uh, for the past year and see the work that you've done. And I thought it would be fun for our listener to hear a bit about your story and as well as your work at Pivotal Ventures. I would start, like to start with what's your journey like? How do you start your journey? You start your career in finance mm-hmm. and walk us through. Sure, sure. So uh, again, it's it's a real pleasure to to be here with you today and with your with your listeners. Um, so my journey and my career, I, I like to say it's it's probably I, I had no grand plans to to be in finance or, or Wall Street. Um, I don't think many people, frankly, if if they say this, they might be looking back with kind of rose colored tinted glasses that. You know, they know that they want to be an investor or an allocator of capital. I, I sure did. And I had no idea what those jobs really were until I kind of got to college and, and started exploring different um, internships. But for me, I've always been a curious person. Um, I love digging into problems, exploring you know, new products, new ideas. And I think that as a foundation is in some ways what kind of led me at least in some ways on on this path that that I've been that I've been on for um, now more years than I may admit to uh, on, on this podcast but I grew up in Texas uh, I went to college in St. Louis at Washington University and from there I've pretty much spent my entire professional uh, working life on the east coast between New York Boston and Washington DC uh, so I started my career at Goldman Sachs on Wall Street, um, and you know back then it's it's interesting. I think this will kind of be the through line of our conversation. Of for me, I I am so proud that I get to align my you know passion for investing and finance with impact in the job that I do at Pivotal Ventures. But I didn't necessarily start there, um, and I think that that that's just a reflection of sort of where the financial service industry uh, and the investment industry has been. Um, and there was a clearer, kind of maybe brighter line uh, between the sort of 
you know, card finance and the social impact side. And the latter was more of what I did in my spare time, you know, when I was volunteering um, and doing work in the in the community. Um, but when I got to Harvard Business School, that was kind of a, a, a point for reflection as, as business school often it is and stepping back and, and figuring out what the next phase of my career would hold. And the Social Enterprise Club uh, was, and I think still is, one of the largest clubs on campus. And I joined. And it was exciting to see that there were just increasingly more opportunities to align my values with my professional interests. Uh, what I had been building you know, prior to that and going to business school in, in, as an investor um, and seeing the rise of, of ESG and more intentional impact investing. So, you know, really I started my career again at Goldman doing manager diligence. And like I said, I, I don't think most people think of that as a job to have, but um, it's equal parts kind of art and science, I like to say, and, and figuring out the right questions to ask, going back to, as I said earlier, being a just naturally curious person. Um that balance was always interesting to me. So I've been thrilled, you know, really for the last kind of decade plus at this point, I have been able to achieve greater alignment and harmony in this sort of professional and personal journey for that matter, um, investing alongside my values with, with purpose. Um, so immediately after um, business school, that led me to Cambridge Associates, where I was for, for over eight years. And while there, I served as a member of the firm's social and impact investing practice, Many of the clients I served while I was at Cambridge and had the privilege to serve were some of the world's largest foundations, philanthropically oriented families. Um, so I was able to dig in and support them aligning their investment programs with their values and doing some thematic and manager diligence around you know areas like gender equity, racial equity, and, and social equity as examples. And so my job at Pivotal to kind of land, you know, the journey where I am today is, is in some ways really the, the best of all of this. I, I consider myself, again, incredibly lucky that I get to lead this investment team at Pivotal Ventures and drive capital to more women, more women of color, um, those that have been underrepresented and undercapitalized. Um, but doing that, again, with great financial rigor. And um, our principal, Melinda French-Gates, has, has been very clear that she set out to make money with this portfolio of investments that we're building. And, you know, that by not investing in women, you're missing out on tremendous opportunities and leaving money on the table. So I get incredibly motivated every day to wake up and prove that point uh, and, and work with amazing investors, founders, entrepreneurs that are really changing um, the face of of the investment ecosystem, venture capital, the investment industry broadly. It's really interesting. I was just, as, as I was listening to your story, it reminds me back about my days when I was in investment banking. What drive me then is so different. What drives me now? And, you know, your experience at Goldman Sachs, you, we hear a lot of story. I think somebody from Goldie uh, wrote uh, uh, an opinion or some I think, was it from Goldman Sachs? We're talking about the yeah. work experience there. But yeah. give us uh, a little bit of what you learned from your experience at Goldman Sachs. I mean, it's a, a really tough place to work, yeah. but you learned a lot from it. Oh, totally. And I would say that I never regret for going the investment banking route because there's so much I learned from it. But I'd like to hear what you learned from it that you still bring to where you are doing today. Sure, sure. And, and again, to state, I mean, I... No better place, like you said, Christina, sort of start your career, or spend time in one's career. The the training, I mean, I think some of the smartest people doing this work 
work at places like Goldman Sachs. So it was it was just a great learning opportunity and kind of setting that foundation for that I've just built upon and, and have continued to develop over the years. But I think some of the lessons I learned, you know, there specifically um, that carry through is like, you know, just ask questions. Uh, and if you don't ask, you won't you won't receive. <laughs> it's kind of like ask and you shall receive, right? Um, and that's true of, again, you know, kind of putting clients first and, and just thinking about asking questions all the time and, and being in a place of inquiry and less certainty, um, I think is important. And, you know, again, Wall Street can be a boastful place, but I often observe that the folks that seem to be getting ahead and the lesson I internalized were the people that were speaking up in meetings and asking questions and sort of pushing, you know, not being satisfied with just the status quo. And I think a piece of that too is just doing your homework in advance. That's something I saw, you know, play out at, at Goldman and really throughout my career. Um, do the meeting before the meeting. Prepare. It's so important. Um, you think you can just people are just showing up and walking into these spaces with all the answers? No, they're spending a lot of time prepping in advance, um, and you have to do that at whatever stage you are in your career. If you're an analyst or if you're a partner. The partner is still prepping for the meeting. The CEO is still prepping for the meeting. At least that's been my experience. And I saw that, you know, kind of hands-on um, in those early days of my career. And it's been a lesson that I've carried with me since. I think uh, prepping for the meeting, sometimes uh, people don't see it because when you prep, you don't see it. All of a sudden you just showed up. And, that's, um, and it's almost like a theater, I feel, that there's a lot of background. Right, right. Before, I mean, and as an example, and this was at Cambridge Associates, a, a very senior, you know, investor there. I was, I was uh, partnering with that individual on a client, and and I just sort of held this person in such high esteem because I'd been in meetings before, and just had seen how you know she had come in and just had complete command of everything. You know, knew the portfolio and remembered, you know, the the investment committee chair's son was at XYZ school, and I'm just like, oh, she has just knows everything. And we happened to be traveling together in advance of this meeting. And she was, you know, I was getting ready to watch a movie on the airplane. She had pulled up, she was preparing, she was going through line by line. And I sort of thought, well, she's so senior, like she doesn't have to prepare. She just knows this stuff. And she was putting in that work, doing that homework in advance and brushing up. And so I put my iPad down and got my note, got my notes out and started prepping too, because that's what it takes, right? To, to really be, I think, you know, again, whatever you're doing as an investor, as an entrepreneur, you have to put in the work, you have to do your homework. Yeah. I think that there is so much is oftentimes you don't see. And, right. but I think also I've heard people who memorize their lines sometimes just so that I mean of course when you spit it out it's not completely memorized but you know your line yes and um I mean I I have perfect example when I was my uh, summer internship job I thought everybody just showed up and then mine was lousy and then my boss was saying like this is not cutting it and that's when I realized oh people prepare and memorize their line and present it like it's like a performance Yes, Almost. yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes, 100%. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by 
Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So one of the things I think as a Goldman Sachs, you do a lot of um, due diligence, you said. Yep. So what are the things that the work that you, because of your training there that you brought to where you are now as an investor? And it's kind of also different, I think, often time when you're in a, in at least when I was in investment banking, you, you tend to see a lot of more like the later stage company. And right. now you're working with the early stage company. What, how is that different? What are the things that you learn from that? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, dil- I often will say diligence is diligence. Um, and I think you learn or what I learned sort of from those early days and has carried throughout my career. And this is true at Cambridge and now at, at Pivotal is you're really trying to get a handle on the people, right? Uh, the word, the people business, you're investing, you know, again, in a product or an idea. And that may be more so true at the later stages, but particularly at the early stage, you're, you're backing individuals, right? An individual idea, an individual's ability to uh, create and build and scale something. And so I always come back to sort of that underwriting and assessment of the team um, and digging in and understanding their motivations, I think is really important. That's something, another thing I would point to, I learned um, early on. And just the last thing I'd say there too, is just the value of kind of triangulation and the importance of references, not taking anything at face value, right? Um, Someone says, this is what we do. Okay, well, let me, not that I just believe you, I don't believe you, but I want to double check and confirm, uh, trust but verify, you know, another way of, of saying that. And I think that's been, again, a consistent learning and something that, you know, Cambridge Associates does incredibly well and is, I think, perfected as a model. And I brought that with me to Pivotal of just keeping track of and watching the room, reading the room, seeing who's not speaking, and then trying to interrogate and understand the why behind that. Uh, particularly in early stage venture, you're again you're investing in these partnerships. It's across the private markets, but you know for a decade plus, right? These are really, these are marriages. People often will use that analogy that you are marrying these partners uh, as a limited partner coming into a fund. It's probably going to be a relationship that lasts longer, sadly, than the average American marriage. So you want to make sure that you understand how decisions are made, how the team works how people are incentivized and compensated. And that's foundational. And that's something that I picked up, again, Mm -hmm. uh, very clearly early on. And it's only continued to be um, made true in in, in the diligence I do today. You mentioned about read the room, the importance of that. How do you do it now in the Zoom world? And also before the Zoom world, like what are the, you know, you have like a framework on how to read the room. You mentioned about somebody not speaking, understanding Mm -hmm. why, and is there other tips? Sure, sure. Uh, Zoom is complicated, this, for sure. I'll say that outright, uh, and your ability to sort of uh, assess some of those non-verbal cues and ticks, and and frankly, seeing how partners and members of a team relate to each other. Because if everyone is sitting in their Zoom screen, it's kind of harder to read up, read up on some of those you know, more subtle, nonverbal um, cues. So that's one biggest, that's probably the biggest difference I call out between in-person and, and, and Zoom uh, diligence. 
But again, I think the tenants and what you're looking for are all kind of the same, um, just how people engage and relate to each other. So I can give you an example of, uh, and this was on Zoom, where one you know, people were just talking over each other. So to me, this goes back to like the preparation point we were talking about earlier. Not that you want a, a presentation that's totally scripted, because uh, that I can also pick up on as well. But it brought into question uh, for me in this one instance of how the communication styles and and how this team actually communicate and what that might, again, going a layer deeper, mean for decision-making and who has power and things like that. So that's some of the stuff that, you know, we're we're watching for both in person and on on Zoom, but I think it's a little bit harder uh, to to tease some of that out out virtually. And uh, that's why we, you know, might take more meetings, one rely on more references. I think that's something that we've had to do in the last few years as we've been more virtual, just trying to, again, trust but verify and test some of those assumptions or what we've heard from you know, other investors, just having that extra call to, to, to see, if it's, if, see if it's true. Um, but we always try, I think the last thing I'd say is, as a team here at Pivotal Ventures, you know, to speak, have, have more than one person from our investment team on every call so that you know, you're not distracted by the questioning, the note taking, someone's always watching to be on, you know, to be keeping an eye on some of these factors um, and can, you know, message or chat or pass a note to another colleague and say, hey, you know, they didn't really answer. You were kind of moving on. They didn't really answer that question. Let me go back to that. What what does that mean that they're not answering that question? Those are the types of things uh, that we're teasing out. And then, you know, you have to debrief after the meeting as well and see what what still is to be uncovered. It's, it's a constant journey of discovery. That's why I love this work. Um, so there's always something new to probe on. <laughs> I just think it's so funny. It's like when I think about when I was going to school, thinking about work is doing a lot of the work, delivering the work. But, mm-hmm. you know, now as I've seen like the work that you do and a lot of the work that we do is a lot about the people dynamic and it's a lot of observing people. It's like people watching. And somehow we were not told enough when we were young how important it is to observe people. Yes. A hundred percent. I agree with you there. It's it's you know, you're we're often what's maybe rewarded is the person who's always out in front talking the loudest or the quickest. Um and I think as an investor, you know, you may learn more by sitting back and watching sometimes uh, and seeing how others others react um, to information or, or what have you. And I think even with all the observing, they are tend to be in the ideal situation oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And then as you dive in and sometimes you, I think you have that relationship and then things get difficult. That's when you see another characters. Yes, yes, yes. When times are good, everybody's happy and is your friend. But when, <laughs> and I've now invested through you know multiple kind of you know the financial crisis and other other blips in the you know almost you know decade and a half, close to two decades. I've been in this industry, and like you said, you that's when. I think there's that old Warren Buffett adage or something about like when the tide goes in and out, right? Like you can see who's been swimming with their shorts on or off. Uh, It's maybe a little 
crass, but I think it's true, right? When when things are more challenging, that's when true partnership is revealed. Are you a good partner or not? Um, and so you you need to be prepared to for that and to have those conversations when when times are more challenged. So now that you have gone through all that, and then I'm sure there's some part that you just feel like that was really challenging. Mm-hmm. That I wonder, oftentimes you knew that it's going to be challenging, but then you ignore the red flag because you love it so much. Or is it completely a surprise? Yeah. No, uh, it's an interesting question because I, I do think um, what you're get, you can get sort of swept up in whatever it may be, right? Uh, an exciting new company that everybody's backing and, you know, even recent press, right? History is littered with the things that were very bright and shiny and everyone, you know, started deploying capital towards them and it, and it may not have been um, all that it appeared to be. Um, and I think, yes, I've, I've also too, I made many, you know, we could have a whole podcast talking about investment mistakes, <laughs> Or as you mentioned, mistakes. Uh, if you're not, you're not doing your job, if you're not making, if you're not learning, and, and as you said earlier, making making mistakes. But I, I do think it's slowing down is probably the thing I would point to. And we try and build this into our process at at Pivotal Ventures. Of, of you know, there are things those times where you have to move quickly, but never at the expense of ignoring mm-hmm. the flags or the checks or the things that aren't sort of sitting in the right way and then interrogating why that is or calling out what might just be a bias, like what versus a flag uh, and, and calibrating that. But I think the way to do it and the way that I've done it um, and not always successfully, because like I said, I have made mistakes is to try and slow where you can slow down the decision-making. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to uh, finish our conversation without asking you about pivotal ventures. Of course. Uh, and tell us more about it what everything about it, like what the focus areas, the check size, what are the stages, all the good yep. stuff that entrepreneurs usually need to know in order to sure. pivotal. Well, starting out, so Pivotal Ventures is an investment company founded uh, by Melinda French Gates to advance social progress in the United States and remove barriers that hold uh, people back. So what makes us unique is that we're not traditional philanthropy only. Um, in addition to writing philanthropic checks and using you know, that lever to drive change and, and impact uh, with philanthropic capital, we also drive social impact with our investment capital. And you know, the philanthropic dollars in some ways are correcting for market failures, but our investment strategy, we're really trying to unleash new solutions, new market solutions uh, and support the investors and founders that are that are doing that. And we're on a mission to bring more opportunity and equality um, to the to our country, as I said, and expand women's power and influence specifically. Um, and in order to do that, and this is kind of getting to the the execution of our of our investment strategy specifically, to expand women's power and influence, we have to ensure that a diverse group of people are controlling, accessing, and benefiting from investment capital. Um, and the decisions that we're making today are going to determine sort of who, who's in the seats tomorrow and who's left behind. And we want to see more women, more people of color, more women of color in those seats, um, because that's where I think they're great ideas and there's a lot of, of money uh, to be made. So like I said, our, our investment strategy, we view and we focus uh, in the early stage, primarily venture capital and private markets. 
Um, you know, we view venture as a as a tool to advance social progress, um, but also advance women's power and influence, as I as I mentioned. Um, and we're trying to expand the representation of women in tech and in venture through a couple of different um, avenues in our in our strategy. Because as I'm sure you know, Christine, and, and probably true for maybe many of the listeners as well, you know, women and specifically women of color are chronically underrepresented across the investment industry. I mean, you pick an asset class, it's true, but it's particularly true in entrepreneurship and in venture. Um, and again, we can pick our array of stats, but, you know, in 2021, uh, PitchBook you know, reported that only 15% of decision-making roles at USBC firms, firms were led by were women in those seats. And, you know, if we want to propel innovation and equitable wealth distribution, we need to change that number. We need more women in, in those seats. So that's really the sort of backdrop of our strategy, uh, high level, who we are as a company at Pivotal Ventures. So how do we actualize this with our investment portfolio? We deploy capital to both fund investments as a limited partner, as an LP, and also direct investments into um, companies. So I can share a little bit uh, about both of those pillars, and, and as it sounds like that might be of interest to uh, to listeners. So on the fund side, we focused on um, investing in female-led funds uh, primarily to date. Um, so women-led, again, early stage, kind of pre-seed through early growth rounds, uh, fund size minimum 25 and up, um, again, U.S. focus, and outside of that, those are those are our core kind of gating criteria. I can share some some examples if that if that may be of interest. But but that's really where we're focused. Does on the, the team all have to be women, or can it be mixed? As no, long it, as can, women it can be men. Yeah, the women need to be the the owner. You know, the GP majority of the GP decision makers. Again, going back to that stat I mentioned earlier, because okay. I, I think where the difference lies. I'm all for seeing diverse teams and we we want that in our portfolio, but we want to have, again, advancing women's power and influence, women controlling the purse strings. We want to have that female ownership uh, and leadership be kind of foundational uh, for the fund uh, strategy. So that's the fund uh, side. And then on the direct side, we are focusing um on companies that are building in the care economy right now. And so how we define that uh, in a couple of ways, you know, tech enabled or, or software solutions that will free up time, reduce the stress of caregiving, improving access to care and support um, or benefit for the unpaid caregiver. And Pivotal Ventures, we've done supported some research that size the care economy at, at $648 billion. So, I mean, it's a huge investment space and this covers a spectrum of themes for us, specifically from childcare, household optimization, future of work, you know, mental health, women's health, aging, longevity, all areas that um, we're excited and see great opportunity. And the sweet spot for us uh, from a stage perspective with our direct strategy right now is Series A to B rounds, although we opportunistically go a little bit earlier or a little bit later and always open to meeting founders at you know, kind of different stages of, of their journeys to, to build relationships and to track them um, and not leading, not taking board seats, but kind of being a meaningful, hopefully strategic uh, check in, in, in one of those early, early rounds. And so tell me more about the care economy and women. Yeah. 
how is that? Just help us understand the connection. Sure, sure. So, you know, I think we're, we see, we're trying to address barriers that are holding our country back, holding people back, holding women's, holding, holding women back at Pivotal to advance women's power and power and influence. You know, it's a, a foundational uh, outcome that we're striving towards uh, as an organization. And COVID, I think, showed this, you know, shined a bright light on this that, you know, a lot of caregiving burdens, we're all caregivers at some point in our lives, uh, agent to your parents, for yourself, for your children and your community. But a lot of that burden uh, falls on women and it pulls you out of the workforce, takes time away from other responsibilities and opportunities. And so for us, that putting a dollar amount on that market was very important to show, I think, the investment community and, and even founders that are building in the space. There's great opportunity here. We need more innovation in these spaces. Um, Policy is not going to do it alone. Government's not going to do it alone. Private sector is not going to do it alone. But I do think, you know, again, the there is a strong link to sort of seeing this as a space to really unlock, I think, some great solutions. Um, in, in tech and in, in, in the markets to support innovation here that will directly impact the lives of, of a lot of women and, and caregivers broadly, but women women specifically. Yeah. I mean, our society is getting older and then our labor shortages are keeping, keep getting harder and harder to find labor. So, yep. Yep. And so last question, you've seen a lot of startups uh, founders uh, meeting with you, trying to get funding. Any uh, advice during this challenging time? Everybody's saying, you know, it's really challenging time, but at the same time, depending on who you talk to, people, some people raise money too, so. Right, right. No, it's a great question and, and one that is, I've been thinking a lot about to be candid because I prefer to see the opportunity and the, maybe where the the, the challenge may be, which is, I think, both sides of, of your question are, are getting at that. So if I had to pick, you know, one or two things, I, I point to, you know, the fact that now, you know, you talent, there's a great opportunity to, to bring great talent to the table if you're building uh, at this moment, uh, when there's been dislocations, you know, innovation doesn't stop, I guess, is, is what I would say. So I would encourage founders to, you know, keep, you um, keep pushing, keep iterating. And, you know, the, some of the best companies are often, and, and history has proven this, right, kind of out of the ashes of challenging time periods, you know, again, great businesses are, are built uh, because I think maybe some of that hype has, has, has flown away and the fundamentals are what matter. So with that, I'd say, take advantage of it and focus on the fundamentals, right? Like acquiring your users, scaling your revenue, building a great product, getting that product market fit. Because before, in the last couple of years, you could show up with a napkin and someone would write you a check valuing your company <laughs> like $100 million. Those days are gone. Focusing on the fundamentals is, is I think, essential. And as um, allocators of cap, as an allocator of capital, assessing both fund managers and entrepreneurs, you know, we want to understand what your edge is and are you building something that's going to be durable and lasting? And so I would encourage, you know, founders, entrepreneurs and investors to focus on that. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned also oftentimes the more you do, 
the more you opportunity you see. And I think the company also changed along the way. Exactly. And what is a good time for a startup to connect with you at what stage? Yeah, it's a great question because I think it, it's uh, maybe unsatisfactory. It, it, it depends. I don't think there's any one one answer. Um, you know, we've had conversations with founders that are, you know, still very early, maybe even pre-product. Um, but it's interesting to sort of get a we're tracking throughout. Um, but I will say I'm also very sensitive to time as our most precious resource, right? And so we don't want to take a founder's time if we're not going to be in a place to write a check today. So I think it's 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 outreach and keeping folks informed. And it might be a, you're not a fit today or at the right stage today. But I encourage all founders to, if you're good about putting together a monthly or quarterly summary, keep that coming. I read those. Our team reads those. That's how we track and sort of stay on top of it. And, and that keeps you top of mind as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because I get that email and I see, oh, Company X is looking for Y. Okay, well, wait. Oh, that's interesting. How can I? How can I help? Who do I know? Or let me introduce you to another inv- investor. And then when you show up knocking on our door, when you're ready to raise your Series A, I can go back and read all those emails <laughs> and see the progress that's been made. Or we've had points of connectivity along the way. So I, I think focusing on that, like again, back to the fundamentals, executing a good business and your strategy, recognizing as you said, Christine, you may pivot along the way, and that's okay. Um, so it's never a bad time or the wrong time to reach out. But I think finding ways to passively sort of keep, mm-hmm. you know, your stakeholders engaged is something that successful founders do well. And so, again, I would I would say that's a good way to stay on our radar if we do connect and it's too early for an investment. Yeah, well... Well, thank you for your insight and your lessons learned that you share with us. And I really enjoy our conversation and I learned a lot uh, through this conversation that we have. Oh, thank you, Christine. It was a lot of fun to chat with you and and hopefully we can uh, get some more capital in the hands of of some great women. That's our goal (laughs) at Pivotal and and Advancing Women's Pride Influence. So anything I could do to share you know, what we're building and, and how we see the world and, and hopefully share some lessons. It's, it's a wonderful way to spend, spend time with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.